Welcome to Music History Monday for December 27th, 2021. I'm Bob Greenberg, and the title for today's podcast is Dmitry Shostakovich, Symphony Number no. 7. If you haven't already, please consider joining me on my subscription site at patreon.com slash robertgreenbergmusic, where I blog, vlog, podcast, pontificate, review, and bloviate four to six times a week. We mark the completion on December 27, 1941, and even 80 years ago today, of Dmitry Shostakovich's Symphony No. 7, the so-called Leningrad Symphony. He had begun the symphony at home in Leningrad, but completed it in Kuibyshev, a city today known by its original name as Samara. Located on the Volga River, just west of the Ural Mountains, Kuibyshev slash Samara was one of a number of safe havens set up by the Soviet government to protect its intelligentsia from the invading Nazi hordes. Background. With friends like these. On August 23rd, 1939, Joseph Stalin's Soviet government signed a pact of non-aggression and friendship with Adolf Hitler's Germany. In a secret protocol, among other things, it was agreed that the Soviet Union and Germany would, between them, slice and dice and then gobble up Poland, and that the Baltic states of Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia would stay within the Soviet sphere of influence. In return, Stalin pledged to stay out of any war between Germany and any of the Western democracies. And so the Stalinist demon sold its soul to the Hitlerian devil. The pact stunned the world. Russia and Germany, the two great continental powers of Europe, had never trusted one another. And now, two of the most militant, malignant, psychotic sociopaths in history, Hitler, 1889 to 1945, and Stalin, 1878 to 1953, representing the two most oppositional ideologies of the 20th century, had figuratively shoved their tongues down each other's gullets. As an immediate result, Hitler's war, as the Soviets often called it, was able to begin. Nine days after the signing, his eastern flank secure, Hitler was free to begin his war of expansion, and Germany invaded Poland. Two days later, on September 3, 1939, Great Britain and France, honoring treaty obligations with Poland, declared war on Germany. And thus began the European phase of World War II. It is no small irony that in many ways Nazism and Stalinism represented two sides of the same coin. Both Nazism and Stalinism were rooted in a cult of personality based on the infallible actions of a single leader with total authority. Both systems employed a small ruling elite and a single ruling party to push forward their agendas. 
Both systems were atheistic, admitting no higher authority than the great leader himself, and both systems sought to do away with traditional notions regarding good and evil. Both systems sought to destroy the old world and create in its place a new international order based on its own utopian vision. Both systems placed the state as an organic living entity above the needs of any individual, excepting, of course, Hitler and Stalin. Both systems required enemies, external and internal, to justify their actions. For Stalin, the great external enemy was international capitalism. His domestic enemies were saboteurs, who stifled progress, and ideological backsliders, who no longer supported the revolution. For Hitler, the great enemies, external and internal, were communism, democracy, and the Jews. Both systems required massive secret police organizations, concentration camps slash gulags, and summary justice in order to control its population. Both Nazism and Stalinism were posited on unlimited expansion. Put simply, both Hitler and Stalin wanted to rule the world. Finally, both regimes were intrinsically criminal. Grim reflections of Hitler's and Stalin's psychotic personalities. However, having noted their commonalities, Nazism and Stalinism were ideological opposites. Stalin came to power as a result of a revolution of the political left. Hitler came to power as a result of a revolution of the political right. Stalinism advocated state ownership, Nazism state control. In theory, Stalinism put forth a concept of global egalitarianism, while Nazism advocated ultranationalism. These ideological differences rendered Nazism and Stalinism natural-born enemies. Hitler, who believed that Marxism, Bolshevism, and communism were interchangeable terms, made his intentions towards Russia crystal clear in his autobiographical rant, Mein Kampf, or My Struggle, the first volume of which was published in 1924. We quote, Never forget that the rulers of present-day Russia are common blood-stained criminals, that they are the scum of humanity, which overran a great state in a tragic hour, slaughtered and wiped out thousands in wild blood lust, and have been carrying on the most cruel and tyrannical regime of all time. Furthermore, do not forget that these rulers belong to a race which combines, in a rare mixture, bestial cruelty and an inconceivable gift for lying, and which today seeks to impose its bloody oppression on the whole world. Do not forget that the international Jew who completely dominates Russia today regards Germany as a state destined to the same fate. In Russian Bolshevism, we see the attempt by the Jews to achieve world 
domination. How shall we explain Bolshevism as an accursed crime against humanity if we ally ourselves with this spawn of hell? Unquote. But of course, that's precisely what Hitler did when he signed his Treaty of Non-Aggression and Friendship with Stalin. It was a friendship that was to last all of 21 months. War. On Sunday, June 22, 1941, Dmitry Shostakovich had a hot date. He and his pal, Isaac Glickman, 1911 to 2003, planned to attend a soccer match doubleheader, Dynamo versus Zenith, and then go out to dinner. Sadly, none of it ever took place. On their way to the stadium, they heard Vyacheslav Molotov's radio broadcast announcing the German invasion of the Soviet Union. Joseph Stalin, who had been receiving solid intelligence about the Nazi invasion plans for months, was stunned, rendered virtually speechless, which is why Molotov had to address the nation. Alexander Solzhenitsyn later wrote, quote, Not to trust anybody was typical of Stalin. All the years of his life did he trust one man, and that was Adolf Hitler, unquote. Oh, the irony of it all. Back in Leningrad, Shostakovich immediately volunteered for the army, but with his eyesight, to say nothing of his importance as a cultural icon, he was instantly rejected, being told, quote, we'll call you when we need you, unquote. He spent the next month digging ditches and anti-tank barriers around Leningrad and was then assigned to the Conservatory Firefighting Brigade, in which capacity he appeared on the cover of Time magazine the following summer of 1942. But mostly, mostly, Shostakovich composed with an intensity new even for him. He arranged patriotic melodies and anthems, composed marching songs, and, most importantly, began work on his Symphony No. 7, working so intensely that he often took the score with him to the roof of the conservatory where he was assigned to fire duty. He later recalled, quote, I wrote my seventh symphony, the Leningrad, quickly. I couldn't not write it. War was all around. I had to be together with the people. I wanted to create the image of our embattled country, to engrave it in music." Unquote. Shostakovich completed the magnificent first movement of the seventh on September 3rd, 1941, just as the Germans were completing their blockade of Leningrad. At the heart and soul of this first movement, is the so-called invasion theme, a purposely banal theme that approaches from the distance, growing in volume and dissonance as it approaches. From its first appearance to its cacophonous climax, this theme 
and its inexorable repetitions occupy a full 11 to 12 minutes in performance. Listen, please, to the invasion theme in the superb performance that's linked to this post. It begins at 7 minutes and 7 seconds into the performance and doesn't conclude until 21 minutes and 8 seconds in. Now, call it Corporal Schickelgruber, also known as Adolf Hitler. Call it Joseph Dugashvili, also known as the Man of Steel, Joseph Stalin. Take your pick. The sheer banality of this theme, with its ever louder, ever uglier incarnations, is the musical equivalent of a cancerous tumor, dividing and multiplying and eventually destroying its host. When Shostakovich played the movement on the piano for his friend Isaac Lichtman, he remarked with no small bit of irritation, quote, Idle critics will no doubt reproach me for imitating Ravel's bolero. Well, let them, for this is how I hear the war, unquote. By early September of 1941, most of Leningrad's artists and intellectuals had been evacuated from the city. Shostakovich refused to evacuate. On September 4th, the Germans began shelling the city. Thirteen days later, on September 17th, Shostakovich broadcast the following over Leningrad radio, quote, An hour ago, I finished the score of two movements of a large symphonic composition. If I succeed in carrying it off, if I managed to complete the third and fourth movements, then perhaps I'll be able to call it my seventh symphony. Why am I telling you this? So that the radio listeners who are listening to me now will know that life in our city goes on." Unquote. Two weeks later, Shostakovich was ordered to evacuate and, to the huge relief of his friends and family to say nothing for posterity, he complied and flew out of Leningrad with his wife and two children on October 1, 1941. Arriving in Moscow, the family spent a good bit of time in the air raid shelter under the Hotel Moscow, where they were staying. It was there, in the shelter, that Boris Kaken observed Shostakovich during an air raid, pacing back and forth and muttering to himself, quote, Right, brothers! Right, brothers! What have you done? What have you done?" Unquote. The composer Karen Kachaturian, who had come to see the departure from Moscow of his uncle Aram Kachaturian, was a witness to the Shostakovich family's departure from Moscow. Quote, I suddenly caught sight of Dmitry Dmitrievich on the platform. He looked completely bereft. He was holding a sewing machine in one hand and a child's potty in the other, while his wife, Nina Vasilyevna, stood beside the children and a mountain of stuff. I helped them load their things onto the train." Unquote. As we've previously observed, Shostakovich and his family ended up in Samara, in Kwibyshev, on the Volga River just west of the Ural Mountains. It was there 
that Shostakovich completed his Seventh Symphony on December 27, 1941, 80 years ago today. You can't make this up. Shostakovich and his Seventh Symphony were propaganda manna from heaven for the embattled Soviet government. Here was the heroic young composer resisting evacuation from his native city, at the same time composing a symphony that would express the plight, the power, the dignity, and the pain of the Soviet people. Is there a publicist anywhere who couldn't work with that? Shostakovich and his Seventh Symphony became symbols overnight. That's when Shostakovich, wearing his fireman's helmet, appeared on the cover of Time magazine. Meanwhile, the finished score of the Seventh was carried out of Russia on microfilm to be performed and broadcast across England and the United States. The score and parts were then flown back into Leningrad for a gut-wrenching performance in that besieged city on August 9th, 1942, by the starving members of the Leningrad Radio Orchestra, conducted by Carl Eliasberg. Loudspeakers broadcast the performance throughout the city, as well as to the German troops in their siege lines just outside of the city. According to Shostakovich biographer Laurel Fay, quote, the seventh anchored itself in the popular consciousness as an instantaneous cultural icon, something totally unprecedented for a serious symphonic work." Unquote. The playwright Alexander Kron, 1909-1983, summed up the Leningraders' own reaction to the symphony. Quote, People who no longer knew how to shed tears of sorrow and misery now cried for sheer joy, unquote. It is all the stuff of legend. But what does the symphony really mean? The truth, the real meaning of the Seventh Symphony is even more interesting than legend. Shostakovich played through the completed Seventh Symphony for his friends and neighbors in Kwebyshev on that evening of December 27, 1941. Later that same evening, he got into a conversation with Flora Litvinova, a neighbor and a friend of his wife. Litvinova recalled, quote, I looked in on the Shostakoviches. They were talking about the symphony. And then Dmitry Dmitrievich said reflectively, the symphony is about fascism, of course, but fascism isn't simply Nazism. The music is about terror, slavery, the bondage of the human spirit. Later, when Dmitry Dmitrievich began to trust me, he told me directly that the seventh and the fifth as well are not about fascism, but about our system in general about totalitarianism." Unquote. Another irony. Without the war as a pretext, Shostakovich would never have been allowed to write a symphony like his seventh. The Soviet journalist Ilya Ehrenberg explained that the war years 
were a time of relative freedom for Soviet creativity. Quote, you could depict grief and destruction, for the fault lay with the Germans. In peacetime, unclouded optimism was required of art. Shostakovich's Requiem symphonies, numbers 7 and 8, would have been subjected to annihilating criticism. Ironically, the war rescued Shostakovich. But the war could not continue forever." Unquote. Though we would observe that it continued for long enough. Thank you. To sample and download one or all of my many courses on subjects musical produced by The Great Courses slash The Teaching Company, please visit my website at robertgreenbergmusic.com.